Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Is This Music, a podcast about the mysteries of musical taste, why we love the music we love and hate what we hate and what it all means and why it matters. My name is Malcolm Fraser, and on this episode, I am speaking to Tracy Lindemann. Tracy is an old colleague of mine from the trenches of alternative media. We have a lot of war stories about that, but those are stories for another day. Tracy is a journalist and the author of the book Bleed, Destroying Myths and Misogyny in Endometriosis Care. Uh, the book jacket describes it as part memoir, part investigative journalism, and all scathing indictment of how the medical system fails patients. It's a powerful book um, that you should check out. Um, when I picked up the book, I noticed right away that all the chapter headings were named after famous punk rock tunes. And I remembered in that moment that Tracy's a big music fan. We had some musical discussions and uh, occasional disagreements about music in the old days. And I knew I had to talk to her for the podcast. So enjoy it right here on What Is This Music? Tracy Lindemann, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, well, it's a pleasure. And congratulations on your book, Bleed, Destroying Myths and Misogyny in Endometriosis Care. Uh, which has not only been published to rave reviews, but I understand has also just uh, had a second printing announced. Yes, yeah. I sold out of the first. That's exciting. I, <laughs> I mean, it's not, you know, every day that that happens with this small Canadian uh, independent publisher book. Yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah. Uh, um, so, I mean, I'm sure, like, we can... we that the stuff from the book will come up during our discussion. Um, but uh, as you know, this is mainly a podcast about uh, musical taste. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why I thought of you to be in the podcast is because um, in your book, uh, the, the chapter headings are all named after famous punk rock songs. <laughs> the Easter egg for the people who know. If you know, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about the, your decision to, to, to do that? Um, yeah. I mean, like growing up loving punk rock and listening to it all the time still, it just seemed like there were so many great songs and song titles that were applicable to the the headings and so once I I think I kind of started off with one and then I was like I should make them all a little hint you know a little easter egg for the fans out there um and so I did and uh it's uh I don't know it's fun for me and every now and then I get someone who knows what I'm talking about yeah um it's and, and how does it connect to the uh to the larger themes of the book um well because the book is confrontational, um, sometimes angry, sometimes funny, um, very blunt and direct. Like, isn't that how you might describe punk rock? Totally. You know, it's a very punk rock kind of sensibility to it. And I think uh, punk rock being part of my life um, in a lot of different ways kind of just informed the tone of the book um, as well. So I think that... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it connected for me. Um, and I think that even people who aren't 
punk rock fans who don't know where these references come from, like they still make sense to the contents of each chapter. Um, and so, you know, it's not like some obscure reference that no one will understand. <laughs> uh, so for example, uh, you know, some of the chapter titles, like, um, you know, what do I get? Like a famous Buzzcock song. Oh, bondage up yours. One, two, three, four. <laughs> um, you know, nervous breakdown by Black Flag. I want to be well uh, by the Ramones and Joey Ramone. Um, so like these are all little things that connect to the larger themes that are in the book. And, you know, for the people who don't know, I think that on the surface, they still make sense. For sure, for sure. So tell me a little bit about the first time that you heard punk rock or discovered it or got into it as a kid. I discovered it through a book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Please Kill Me. Okay. The Uncensored Oral History of Punk Rock. Um, and that was by uh, Legs McNeil and Jillian McCain. I've read that book several times uh, since first taking it out from the library in Ville Saint Laurent when I was 16 or 17. Um, up until that point, I loved all kinds of music. Um, you know, I listened to radio hits. I listened to classic rock, 80s hair metal, all kinds of different things. But I didn't really have my genre, not the one that I identified with. Um, and so like, I kind of had this interest in, in music and punk rock and like alternative music um, from a young age, but it was only really when I read that book. And then I went back to the library and I took out CDs of all the bands mentioned because mm. um, that was a thing you could do. And you can still do, by the way, you can still take out CDs from the library. Mm -hmm. um, that I just went and listened to all these different bands and I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is what I've been looking for, you know? And so it, you know, it kind of talks, uh, it name drops a ton of bands, um, the, the Please Kill Me book. Uh, but, you know, it's focused on the New York punk rock scene. So a lot of Ramones, uh, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, New York Dolls, The Heartbreakers, Television, Blondie, Patti Smith, uh, and all the hangers on too, you know, like poets and writers and mm -hmm. otherwise artistic people and just weird people hanging out in that scene. Um, and it really gave me an appreciation for what had happened there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, I love that book too. Um, I, I, and I, I feel like I'm almost jealous of the teenage you discovering the book for the first time uh because uh it would be so exciting it's like a one-stop shop for uh discovering all that proto-punk stuff mm -hmm. um yeah i um and it's such a great place to start too um you know just historically with the origins of the genre being in that scene um i uh, i i read it too but I, it was like years after i was a teenager and i'm trying to think of you know, how I discovered all, all that stuff. I think it must have been through reading music magazines. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love all that stuff too so much. And um, it's, uh, I mean, this is slightly off topic, but I loved, I mean, in, in that book, if, if I remember correctly, uh, Patti Smith is portrayed as a sort of social climber. And then like later on when I read her book, 
uh, just kids, which is also amazing. Um, she's very overt about the fact that she just wanted to be kind of a, you know, a, a, an important presence on the scene and just set about doing that in any way possible, which I thought I was... I get the impression that she was a social climber, but maybe we just have different perspectives of it. I, I, I maybe it was just one or two people quoted in the, in Please Kill Me that um th- that gave that impression but but i i'm i'm not trying to be hard on patty smith because i think she's amazing but i actually i mean i i thought it was really uh kind of brave of her to say that because most people will will say that you know their artistic genius is the only thing that guides him but she was pretty pretty uh overt in talking about how like she wanted to to be an important person on the scene and she was going to achieve that uh any way she could I mean, like, I can appreciate that she had a sense of urgency of needing to belong in that scene, right? Because she just wanted to, like, establish herself and then be able to, like, stretch her artistic wings, <laughs> whatever they say. Um, so I don't really see her as a social climber. And I mean, she got by on her own merit. And I remember at Pop Montreal, the first time she ever came to Pop Montreal, mm-hmm. I went to the symposium and she was there. And she like she was like about to walk up and past me like on her way out and i was just like what do i say <laughs> i was like oh my god i'm such a huge fan like i just it was one of those moments where like i'm usually pretty comfortable like talking to musicians but i was just so starstruck and then i saw her part of her pop montreal stay that year was that she performed at the church on Henri Julien uh-huh. um, and we were all in the pews and it was just like such an interesting experience there were nuns oh, wow. kind of like standing in the back and like but you know the we're all sitting there and standing and the, the pews are still there and it like the acoustics of the church it was it was like otherworldly that experience and it was one of those memories that like I can really vividly remember a couple scenes from kind of like little snapshots of my life, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. I, yeah. I regretted not making that show, but I was actually performing the same night. So I was, uh, you know, it was a stiff competition from Patty yeah. Smith. <laughs> I think the other thing, or one of the other things that's so interesting about that early New York scene for me is that, uh, you know, the bands were so kind of musically different from each other. Like Patty Smith, is kind of lumped in with the punk scene, but she doesn't sound musically anything like the Ramones. And then you also had groups like Talking Heads or Blondie who were sort of like, you know, they're not what you would, what you think of when you think of what punk is, but they were all part of that same community and scene. I think what united them was their attitude, right? Mm-hmm. Being on the, not being in the mainstream, not being necessarily accepted by the mainstream at that point. Obviously, bands like Blondie did become mainstream mm-hmm. after a while. But um, those earlier years, like, I think it was really just about, like, you know, stepping up on stage and stepping up to the mic and being like, fuck you, you're going to listen to me. Um, and I love that. Um, so even if they weren't straight up Ramones copycats or, you know, and it, like New York Dolls and that kind of stuff or Heartbreakers, like they they were still part of that whole thing. And I think that that was what was so interesting about that early scene because, you know, like, like proto-punk, also the Velvet Underground were part of that scene. And like they were very closely intertwined with Andy Warhol and the factory and that whole thing. And so I think from the very beginning, it was really 
meshed in with all different types of uh, subversive art. And that's how I think it all fit together. For sure, for sure. Um, so, okay, so you, so you discovered the, um, the, the genre through Please Kill Me. And, and so your first exposure was really that early punk or proto-punk scene. So where does, where does it go from there? Where did it go from there for you? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I started going to shows religiously from the beginning. Like when I started going to shows, I went to shows. Like, and because it was just like, once I discovered my place, I was like, I want to know everything I can about what's going on here in, in the Montreal scene in particular, because that's where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a venue that does not exist anymore. It closed down 20 years ago. Can you believe it? Salle de l'Ex. Um, and it was an all ages venue, um, which was amazing because you didn't have to be of age yep. to check out music, right? You couldn't drink. Uh, but they kind of had like two floors, right? Where you would, um, all the people under 18 could only stay on the bottom floor. Okay. And the people over 18 could go upstairs and downstairs because upstairs is where the bar was. Mm. Um, and so they had someone at the um, the line <laughs> where the bar was. Like the, there's like this imaginary threshold between the my under 18 and plus 18 zones uh, and someone would check your ID up there. And I remember like when I turned 18, you know, it was like a coming of age moment. Like I proudly presented my ID and I crossed the line, you know, and I was like, ah, I belong on the other side now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, yeah, that venue was so instrumental in me understanding music. And so I went through different phases, I think, because it was also about like what was going on in Montreal at the time. And there was a lot of heavy metal uh, going on in that particular time. I'm talking about maybe 2001, 2002, 2003. Okay. Um, and, but the thing about Montreal is that um, everybody played with everybody. So it wasn't like the metal kids are in one corner and the punk rock kids are in another. Like you could go to a, a show and there'd be five bands playing and it might start with ska then there was a punk band, then there was a psychobilly band, then there were two metal bands. Um, and so you got exposed to a lot of different things that way. And, um, you know, sometimes it was all locals or sometimes it was locals supporting out of town. Uh, and, you know, just to go out to go out to see what was going on, even if I didn't know the bands, like that's really how it kind of blossomed. And so um, I am one of those people that likes ska. <laughs> Uh, it's fun. It's like energetic. It's like, it's fun to listen to like old school specials too, where you're just like chilling out, going on a drive, chilling out in a hammock, doing some gardening. Like it's fun to listen to. Um, um you sound almost, uh, defensive and I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I would w- wonder if we could unpack that a little bit. I mean, uh, it's true that a lot of people don't like Scott. Uh, why, why do you think that is? I think they think it's like, music for scene kids, kind of like emo is, because it had such a childish style at that time um, in terms of clothing and aesthetics and that kind of thing. But I mean, it's true. Like, I don't know why exactly people hate ska, but I love it. And as I got exposed to more and more ska, that's when I started digging into Rocksteady and like different, uh, you know, it wasn't just like Bob Marley style reggae, but like other forms of ska and reggae from Jamaica. Uh, and so like I developed a real appreciation for um, 
the establishment of ska and the uh the roots of it um but a lot of people are purists you know you know that like when it comes to any genre like people can be very very um discriminating (laughs) against like what's cool and what's not cool right for sure yeah why do you think that is i don't know do you have any thoughts about why people don't like ska Oh, well, I mean, I was thinking more general about your more general question about people being discriminating. But um, ska, I mean, I I remember a high school friend of mine said that he he thought it was basically a glorified polka or uh, (laughs) or, um, Klezmer music or like a hip (laughs) version of polka. But even so, I mean, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily. uh, I mean, I, I. when he said that, I, I see what he, what he meant, and just in terms of musically the way it sounds. But like, there's nothing wrong with that. At the same time, they're both just like fun music that makes people dance. Um, I, well, okay, the, why don't people like ska? Uh, it's goofy, um, as you say. Like, the, it comes with its own kind of like fashion sense that is uh, that is kind of like you could perceive as, as being kind of silly. Um, I'm, I'm just like speculating here because I don't really have strong feelings about it one way or the other. Uh, I also think that the, um, the nineties wave of ska was something that, uh, some people had problems with, um, <laughs> planet smashers and all that stuff. Yeah. Or like just, you know, um, whatever like weren't smash mouth and those kind of mainstream no doubt yeah bands. but then again i mean i don't know i mean no doubts like they're kind of they're kind of awesome as a as a pop punk juggernaut uh yeah in and of themselves i think people have strong feelings about sublime i think that's where it starts okay it's the yes. sublime stuff yes and <laughs> and and i'll tell you i i kind of share those feelings personally <laughs> i <laughs> sublime is kind of like a red line for me um but i don't know why it just seems like there's something about it that crosses that line into like a douche bro uh <laughs> you know, beach beach bum kind of culture but then again well, I mean, that has yeah. nothing to do with music you know it's uh, this is one of the things that i like to talk about on the podcast how the things that we like or don't like about music often are not actually related to music per se they're just about our perceptions and like our insecurities and yeah, yeah. well like the sloan song says it's not the band i hate it's the fans yeah. you know and it's totally true like some bands just have the worst fans for sure. Like Pennywise. <laughs> <laughs> like there are Pennywise songs I like. I have seen Pennywise several times. I used to really like them when I was still figuring out my tastes. Mm-hmm. But I mean, their fans suck. <laughs> like what, what they are the douche bros. Like they are the douche bros, the people that like Sublime okay. and the people who like Pennywise. It's like a perfect circle. Okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's no Venn diagram difference. Right. Like they're the people that wear their, you know, their their baseball caps backwards and they uh-huh. all have like tribal tattoos or cross like Catholic crosses and like they're all like, you know, pounding beers uh <laughs> and like being belligerent in the pit and like that kind of stuff. Like I don't know. Like there's just People who are not, it's the same people who like no effects. Okay. I'm just saying. So, I mean, I feel like we're getting into that sort of like 90s 
California uh, punk. Um, yeah. Which is not something that I am that familiar with, although I, although I loved uh, Operation Ivy. Um, yeah, I love Operation Ivy. Yeah. yeah. Um, Did you see that the the singer of Operation Ivy and Tim Armstrong started a new band? No, I, 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 I haven't. It's kept called up. Bad Optics. Oh, okay. And <laughs> good? I haven't actually really listened to them, but it's one of those things that's dividing people too. People are so strange about, about that era of punk rock and that region of punk rock. Um, that I, and I find it so interesting, you know, like if we're talking about California punk, like, you know, if New York is the originator and then it went over to the UK, mm-hmm. like California style punk rock was so much more aggressive and macho and like, you know, like you went to shows to beat people up, like dead Kennedy's black flag, like, you know, all that kind of thing. Like, it was a much more like macho, aggressive form of punk rock. But I've heard like Alice Bag, you know, say that like that's not like, you know, in the, the decline of Western civilization, she was like, she was so upset that like that's how people identify California punk because the real California punk was established by queer people and people of color and women. Um, and then it kind of got eclipsed by this like dead Kennedy's black flag kind of machismo that was overwhelmingly male white male yeah. angry music uh-huh well i mean the 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 dead kennedys were they had a lot of humor and a lot of radical politics uh, um in their lyrics and their presentation um but black flag you know obviously they're hugely important but you know i think even at the time they had this kind of violent macho i mean rollins had this kind of violent macho presentation and that certainly was like even in his published diary to talk about how every show would just erupt into fights in the pit and it's it's strange. yeah i think it's when keith morris the original singer of black flag left because he was just like not having a good time he went on and created the circle jerks like when they replaced him who was not like a super macho guy he was way more political um, and then they were, you know, and then Henry Rollins came in and he was like super buff, ultra muscular. Like he was like, you know, the portrait of the tough guy, California punk image. Yep. Um, I think that's when like something changed, uh, in California punk. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I like all that stuff too. It's just like, <laughs> for example, when I'm driving, I cannot listen to Dead Kennedys because it is so stressful to listen to, especially like when they have like those clowns, like circus music sounds like. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that that's a whole other topic we could go off on, because I mean, the, the whole circus inspired harsh music is its own genre. That is uh, that, that's a big turnoff for a lot of people, myself certainly included, but it has its adherence for sure, too. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so we've gone already in a whole bunch of different directions. Um, I know. Talk. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's what it is. That's <laughs> what we do here. Um, so, um, getting back to like you talked about when you were figuring out your taste, um, and you also talked a little bit about how there wasn't so much of a separation between genres in the Montreal scene, and I remember that too from growing up in Ottawa in the '90s. It was kind of exciting to go to a show and see like you could see five different bands that all sounded totally different from each other um but at the same time like when i was reading 
you know, fanzines, which tended to be from out of California, I don't know, slowly developing a kind of regional theory here. Um, they were always like harshly um, dismissive of anything that was metal. There was this line in the sand between metal and punk, which I always found weird. Um, but, and, and again, like there are some musical differences, but a lot of it has to do with you know, social scenes and, and uh, identification. Um, and but, availability, because California has so many bands. But growing up in Ottawa and growing up in Montreal, it's like there's like a bit of scarcity too, you know. For sure, for sure. Um, so, so you talked about um, about figuring out your taste. So, so can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what was that process like, and what where did you uh, come out on the other end of it? When I read "Please Kill Me" and then I took all those CDs out from the library and I was starting to develop my understanding and my taste and kind of set a baseline anyway, because that was certainly not like the end of my evolution. It was really the beginning. Um, like I went all in, like it just became the way that I looked, the way that I dressed um, and my, you know, it really informed my developing values, my social sensibilities. Um, you know, believing in um, anti-racism, uh, anti-sexism, anti-homophobia, like those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, find, looking for music that kind of echoed um, those things and also helped me branch out my thinking a little bit more. Like it was, uh, it was part of my maturing mm -hmm. from a teenager into an adult, I think, and trying to figure out like, who I really was yeah and that's why it wasn't just about the music it was about like who are you who who am I like what do you stand for yeah um and that's why I think it became so closely intertwined with my life um and yeah I know a lot of people like music is just a thing they do in addition to all the other things they do but for me it was just like, this is it. Like, this is the thing that I'm going to be, like, really passionate about. Um, and so I just dug deeper and deeper and deeper. And I was like, well, I like this modern band, but, like, what came before it? Um, like, what influenced them? You know, like, and for a time, like, I was interviewing a lot of bands for the student paper and, you know, listening to them talking about the bands they loved. Um, and I was like, yeah, like more information is good. And I should say that this was like in an era where there was no Spotify. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I did not trust or understand how to use uh, pirating sites like LimeWire and Napster and all that stuff. So yeah. I was like, <laughs> you know, it was really like going to the library or going to the music store and like buying CDs for a ridiculous amount of money at the time. Um, and just like buying compilations so that I could listen to all these different bands, like the Punkorama compi compilations and stuff like that. And being like, yeah, like, I like this. And then, you know, when I was writing for the student paper, people would send me CDs. Uh, and so, like, it was just like building a foundation of like, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. Um, I like this a little bit, um, finding out what about it I don't like, um, you know, yeah. yeah and and um when you when you talk about uh finding out what things you don't like what what are some what are some things that come to mind with that 
I think like I went to a lot of metal shows when I was like 17, 18 and 19, but like it was very tough guy too. Mm -hmm. And as a young woman, I didn't feel at home in it. Um, and so I, uh, kind of gravitated more towards funner music <laughs> that was a little bit more diverse in terms of the audiences and the bands. Uh, so I gravitated more towards like the punk rock and the ska kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved psych- Psychobilly too, which was a little bit tough guy too, but like not as much as metal. Yeah. Um, and there's a cartoonish element to it too. There's sort of a, it's, it's kind of like a, like um like horror movies and villains and vampires yeah, performative <laughs> toughness yeah uh, but um yeah so and like i should just say like the reason one of the reasons i think i like psychobilly so much was because i grew up listening to oldies radio um and so like listening to like rockabilly and that kind of thing on the radio and then my brother also like loved the stray cats okay <laughs> and so i listened to the stray cats too and i was like this is like a faster more punk version of the stray cats i like it absolutely yeah <laughs> yeah it's 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 got that roots element of course um so earlier on um when we were talking about the connection between uh punk rock and your book you talked about the anger and the confrontational uh, aspect of it. And I think that, you know, if there's one thing that unites all of the different facets or aspects of punk, it's an anti-authoritarian kind of attitude. I think that's safe to say. Um, And I think that's healthy, but I sometimes wonder, and I've had discussions or arguments with some of my punk lifer friends about this. um, Is it healthy to to uh, to hang on to so much anger all the time. What, what do you think about that? I think that's not really a question that has the same answer for everybody that answers it. Because, I mean, just relating it back to my book, like it took me 24 years to get a diagnosis uh-huh. um, of endometriosis. And so it was a lot of years of going to the doctor and them telling me, you're crazy, or why don't you just lose weight, or why don't you just get pregnant, or um, have you considered that maybe you're just insane? Uh, You know, a lot of like these different forms of gaslighting that made me so angry, Mm -hmm. but it felt like a directionless anger Right. um, sometimes, you know, and music helped me like kind of focus that anger into something um, productive yeah. uh, and cathartic, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of just letting it build up inside me. And so like, maybe I was, maybe that that music exposure to music and listening to that music helped me like compartmentalize and like get out a lot of my frustrations um, in a way that like, and that's tied to live music too, not just like listening to something at home and like raging, but mm-hmm. like actually going to a show and being in that physical energy of people moving around and, you know, you know, screaming and singing at the top of their lungs. And like, that's so powerful. And it's so necessary um, yeah. when you have that kind of anger in you. Um, and I think like, I mean, the world is full of injustice. Like there are so many things to be mad about. I mean, it's probably not healthy to be constantly angry, but I don't think that I am constantly angry. Mm-hmm. Like I still laugh and have a good time and watch stupid shows on Netflix and, you know, go travel and enjoy myself. Um, but there are still things to be mad about in this world. 
Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think that, um, music is a good like conduit to express that rage. For sure. Um, for sure. And to, and to, to develop your own position on things. Um, if you really are paying attention to the, the lyrics, you know? Yeah. Um, I remember a little while ago, you posted something on Instagram about, a. a festival or a show that was taking place at a resort and it was like a pretty solid lineup it was like Iggy Pop the Descendants and a few other pretty high you know top tier punk rock uh, performers and I was like and I think your caption was like who wants to go with me or something like that and I was like (laughs) on one hand I was like yeah that sounds kind of amazing actually but then I was like wait punk rock is in its resort phase <laughs> I, well, I'm not sure how I feel about that well Iggy Pop and the Descendants maybe but I don't think all punk rock is no no um, but I, I just think... mean it was it was still surprising to to it felt like a bit of cognitive dissonance for me yeah seeing the, the like words only punk the and elites. resort in the same sentence <laughs> well there is a, a punk band called Last Resort in the <laughs> band you know <laughs> maybe they should have called it that the Last Resort yeah <laughs> No, but like, I mean, punk rock already entered its cruise phase. Like a resort is just a cruise on land, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and like metal did too, you know, like the, what is it like? Uh, the Motley Cruise? No, <laughs> they probably have one. But no, what is it? Is it 10,000 tons of metal or 7,000 tons of metal? Like it's a, a band where like all the big, you know, big metal bands all get on a cruise ship. Right. Uh, Motorhead was on a cruise. Hmm. Uh, I mean, like... You could say it's selling out, but like there's so much purism attached to the the term selling out. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there is something to be said that like you're flying in a bunch of people who have the money to spend on a resort to a place that is historically very poor. Mm-hmm. It was in the Dominican Republic and that almost all of the bands are white in a country that is majoritarily Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Like that was more of the cognitive dissonance for me than anything. It was kind of like a, well, how do I feel about this? Yeah. But then like you look at festivals and festival tickets can cost hundreds of dollars. And so who goes to those? Like it might be more accessible because you eliminate the travel factor. Yeah. But punk punk and metal are overwhelmingly white. Um, and that's very true all over the world. But there are so many bands in other parts of the world that are not majoritarily white that are putting out good music and they just don't get the same exposure uh, as the, uh, you know, white suburban type punk rocker, you know, or even urban like Agnostic Front or all that like New York hardcore kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, there's so much um, there's so much uh, that we could talk about and unpack uh, in this and it's endlessly uh, fascinating to me. Um, but I wanted to ask you um, a question that I ask to all my guests, which is, um, is there a kind of music that you just uh, can't stand and have, <laughs> and, and why? Yes. Jam music. I hate fish. I hate the Grateful Dead. Any song that's over three and a half minutes has to have a really good fucking reason to be that long. <laughs> Jam, like maybe if I was really into acid or like if I was a huge stoner, maybe I would have a better appreciation for jam band music, but I just hate it so much and I cannot listen to it. 
<laughs> so, and even like a really good song, like the Rolling Stones, like Can't Hear Me Knocking. Like, I'm like, I love this song. But then it, when it gets into that weird, like noodling around on the guitar, I have to stop the song. I cannot tolerate the jamming. Yeah. I mean, punk rock is so much the opposite of uh, of uh, jam bands because shortness and concision are so valued in uh, in punk. Yeah. But yeah, like it's not only that it's too long. It's also just like gratuitous. Like, listen to me. I'm so high on drugs and I'm just going to play this one note on the guitar over and over and over again. And like everyone's just like in tie-dye losing their minds in the audience. And it's like, <laughs> I mean, that's not my thing. Um, yeah, I'm happy sure. for everybody to love that kind of music, but I do not. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like, you know, it's it's different tribes it's, or, or, or different like uh, neural programming or something that <laughs> because similarly when I hear fish or uh, or, or or some of the, the Grateful Dead jams I'm just like wow this is not you know connecting with me I don't you know I don't it, there, there's something it, I guess it's just you know at the end of the day it's a difference between people and personalities yeah, absolutely. I like I'm very happy for people to love that music, but I just cannot. Yeah, I hear you. Well, Tracy, thank you for taking the time to speak with me on the show. Uh, they've given me, as always, a lot to think about. And uh, are you on Spotify now? Uh, I guess I use Spotify. Have you made a playlist of all the songs that your chapters are named after? I did. I did. Oh, nice. Well, I'll put it, I'll put the link in the, uh, in the, in the show notes. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for your time and best of luck with the book and all your projects. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can buy Tracy Lindemann's Bleed. Uh, anywhere you buy books. Uh, needless to say, I encourage you to support your local bookstore or buy it directly from the publisher ECW. Um, yeah, you can follow Tracy or and or Bleed the book online, wherever you follow people and uh, products. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time on What Is This Music? Music